And the theme for this Sunday is hope. And so we want to talk this morning about uh, the blessed hope. Um, In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, and Greg and I talked about this a bit this morning because this is not a Christmas message per se, but it is about uh, the hope that we have as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, we read that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I don't hear too many sermons on the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, Uh, but that is our blessed hope, that someday... Um, Perhaps soon, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return in power and glory to receive those who are his own to himself and to bring uh, real justice and righteousness to this world in which we live. 75 years ago, uh, in 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn in their own land. And I use the term reborn because Israel has existed for in the range of 3,000 years. The Old Testament records how the nation began with Abraham and Isaac and the 12 sons of Jacob. You likely know that Jacob's other name was Israel, and that's why the nation Israel is called that, because they are the descendants of of the man Israel, his uh, 12 sons. And and after those 12 sons um, went into Egypt, they grew to over a million people while they were enslaved and serving uh, the Pharaoh there. Then 1,400 years before Jesus was born, uh, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they journeyed to the land of Canaan. They conquered it as directed by God, and they settled there. And that's what really much of the Old Testament is about, the history of uh, Israel as a nation in their land, uh, their kings, their battles, their triumphs, their failures, their prophets who spoke to them. That's really encapsulation of the Old Testament. Well, some centuries later, because they had sinned against him, God scattered most of the Hebrew people among the nations of the world. And many of them are still there. But then in 1948, in a miraculous way, God restored his people, the Jews, to their homeland in the place we know as Israel. And today, as you know, the attention of the world is focused on events happening in a tiny little nation on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And the Bible says that one day, perhaps soon, the Lord Jesus is going to return to establish his earthly kingdom, a kingdom that is again going to be centered in Jerusalem. And the scriptures reveal then to us that the events of the end times will once again focus the attention of the world on Israel. Well, one day during his ministry, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And this view that you see is not exactly (laughs) what Jesus would have seen. But this is about what the city of Israel, of of Jerusalem, sorry, looks like now from the Mount of Olives. And that day, Jesus' disciples came wanting to ask him a question that was burning in their minds. I think one more slide. Yeah, there we go. So all those uh, trees that you see down there, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is located right in the middle of those. So if you're wanting to know kind of where Jesus walked, so it's on the outside of the wall, 
the wall of, of, of Jerusalem is up higher, but the, but the Garden of Gethsemane is outside the wall uh, in those uh, grove of trees. So in Matthew chapter 24, we find um, the disciples coming to Jesus and asking him a question. <clears throat> it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and, and said, tell us, when will the, these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the chapter of Matthew, chapter 24, is often called the Olivet Discourse, meaning it's a sermon discourse given from the Mount of Olives, from the top of that mountain. Really a, a hill in our, <laughs> in our way of thinking out here. So Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, is also found in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21. So if you're reading, you need to read those chapters too to get the whole picture. And Matthew 24 and those other chapters are a record of Jesus' description of what is going to happen as our world, the, our age, comes to an end. So the Greek word for end is eschatos. And the entirety, the whole thing of what the Bible teaches about the end times is often referred to by theologians as eschatology. So it's a branch of, eschat- of a theology called eschatology. talks about the end times. <clears throat> so here is what uh, the AGC, our denomination, the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada that Banff Park Church belongs to, along with 150 or so other churches across Canada. Here's what our denominational statement of faith says on the topic of the end times, or eschatology. At a time known only to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ will return bodily and in glory, receive his own, and establish his earthly thousand-year reign. God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, The unsaved will be cast into the lake of fire to suffer eternal conscious punishment. The saved of all the ages will be forever with the Lord and God will rule over his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. So today we're just going to look at the first few words. At a time known only to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ will return bodily and in glory and receive his own. So as we talk about the blessed hope, what the Bible uh, tells us about the return of Christ, we simply want to ask and answer three questions. First of all, when will Jesus come? Secondly, how will Jesus come? And thirdly, why will he return? And those are on your sheet if you have that little handout, and you can follow along there. So the first question, when will Jesus come? Well, to put it simply, nobody knows for sure. And over time, uh, over the years, every so often, a person comes along who thinks they know. They even may even set a date when they think Jesus is going to come back. Some people have gone so far as to sell their houses and go off to a hilltop to wait for his return. But all of these and all the others who have set dates for Jesus' return have been wrong. And anyone who tries to set a date is likely going to be wrong. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Uh, Jesus is about to leave this world and return to his Father. And on that occasion, uh, the disciples ask him a question again. They had lots of questions. Questions are a good thing. And they asked him on that occasion, Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
See, they knew that the Messiah was going to come and give the kingdom back to, to God's chosen people, the Israelites, and they thought it's going to happen now. And Jesus replied to their question like this, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So kind of the summary of that um, section would be that Jesus told his followers, his ones of that day and of our day too, that it's not our place to know when he's going to return. We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to seek after the exact time. We're to focus on being witnesses to Jesus and to his grace in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work. Earlier in his ministry in Mark chapter 13, uh, Jesus has said, Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So as Christians then, living in 2023, we're not to try to discern the exact time of Jesus' return. Instead, we're to focus on being on guard, on keeping awake, keeping alert in our lives, so we're ready when he does come back. Now, the sad thing is that many Christians today take the Lord's caution about this much too far. Lots of people say, I don't want to know about the end times. Because Jesus said, I'm not supposed to know when he comes back. Well, it's true that Jesus warned us not to try to set a date. But he did uh, give us uh, dozens of mentions in Scripture of the fact that Jesus is returning and a massive amount of information um, in God's word about it. So it doesn't seem to me that it would be wise for us as the servants of Jesus to ignore what he says about his return just because he told us not to find the exact date. So I think that being ready for the second coming of Christ involves studying the Bible earnestly on this subject so the Holy Spirit can prepare us for that event. Because you see, even though no one knows for sure when Jesus is coming back, God's word does say that there's going to be some indicators of his return. So as you study the return of Christ, we find that God provides indicators to prepare us for that event. And we're going to start uh, looking at these indicators. We'll just spend a few minutes on them. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 to 14. So you can follow in your own Bible if you like, Matthew 24, 9 to 14, or up there on the screen. And there, uh, Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 9, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's more than three indicators here, but I just want you to notice the underlying sections in this passage that reveal three of the indicators of Jesus' return that will be noticeable in the times of the end. Verse 9, 
believers will be delivered up to tribulation. Verse 12, lawlessness, so that's evil doing and rebellion will be increased. And verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. So the first indicator of Jesus' return is that there will be a time of tribulation before Jesus comes back. Jesus says to his followers, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now there's another whole sermon that I could and perhaps should preach here, but I'm not going to. And that is, are we as believers going to be here in this world when that great tribulation happens? I happen to think, and the AGC largely believes that we won't be here, but we'll cover that perhaps another time. Later on, in this same chapter, Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30, Jesus kind of expands on this a bit when he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So that's why I say to you that the tribulation that's going to break out in the world when Christians are being put to death in great numbers will be an indication of the fact that the coming of Jesus is not far away. So there's going to be, before Christ comes back, a notable increase of suffering and trials of hatred toward believers. And we see that happening already. If you don't think so, I try standing on a street corner with a sign that says, there are only two sexes, male and female. <laughs> and see what response you get. So that hatred toward Christians starting in a strange way to think that that would be the place that we would be hated. But um, it's starting already. So the second indicator of Jesus' return is the increase of lawlessness. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Jesus says, lawlessness will be increased. And the Apostle Paul picks this up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he expands on it. And he notes that there will be a rebellion led by the man of lawlessness that will precede the coming of Christ. So here we see what um, um, Paul said to the Thessalonian Christians about the end times. He said, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, and by that he means the day of the Lord, another whole sermon, um, that day will not come, (coughs) excuse me, so the day of the Lord is the day when God is going to come back and pour out on on the earth his anger and his wrath against sin. And that will happen, and you find that in Revelation chapter about uh, 4 through chapter 14 or 15, there's a tremendous outpouring of plagues and hail and all sorts of judgments upon the world. And that is the day of the Lord. So that day, Paul says, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul is saying then, 
that not only is lawlessness going to increase just before Jesus returns, but there's going to be one specific person, a leader who is so lawless, so evil that God calls him the man of lawlessness. And this person, as the scripture says here, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship and takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So those of you who, who know about Israel, you know that there is no temple of God there right now. On the site of the temple is what most people think of when they think of Jerusalem, and that is the Dome of the Rock. So the Islamic Dome of the Rock sits on what is the temple site where the Temple of Solomon and the other temples used to sit. So then, as a Christian, you'll know that that temple needs to be rebuilt so that this man of lawlessness can take his seat there and claim that he is God. Well, the third indicator of Jesus' soon return is that the gospel will be fully proclaimed before Jesus comes. So again, Matthew 24, verse 14, uh, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And the book of Revelation talks to us about this. And, and I apologize if I'm kind of giving you a flood of material here that, that, that you haven't thought about for quite a while or that you've never thought about. But that's why that sheet there, I've tried to give you the scriptures and you can go there and look them up and read them and do some study yourself about these things that we're talking about. So Revelation chapter 11. Uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit about, so the gospel is going to be fully proclaimed. So as Christians, as Christians, if you want to make a Christian feel bad, just ask them, so when did you witness to somebody else recently? Because I know it's a struggle for me. It's not something that comes easily to me. It's something that's hard for us as Christians. So we wonder, how can the gospel be fully proclaimed before Jesus comes knowing how hard it is for us to do? <clears throat> so the Bible tells us how it's going to happen. Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses who will declare the gospel with great signs and wonders, but at the cost of their own lives. Those two witnesses are very likely Moses and Elijah. That's what some commentators think. There's other possibilities, but those are probably uh, the two best ones. Because Moses and Elijah, you remember, also did great signs uh, for Israel. Then going on to Revelation 14. Revelation 14 talks about how 144,000 Jewish men will testify about Jesus in the world. And then Revelation 14 also speaks of an angel flying in midair who had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, <clears throat> sorry, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So before Jesus comes back then, God is going to take extraordinary means to be sure that the gospel is preached throughout the world. And Scripture seems to indicate that it's during that time that more people will come to Christ during that time of tribulation, during that time of sorrow and suffering, than almost any other time in the history of the world. Well, the Bible says that these three things will point to Christ's return. So we as believers need to be alert to watch for them because uh, we'll be able to tell by then about, a little bit about the coming of Christ. But the sad thing is that most people will be caught by surprise when Jesus comes. So in Mark's record of the Olivet Discourse, 
Our Lord Jesus says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It will be like a man, it is like a man, going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, stay awake. So, so those words of Jesus and the tone with which he speaks to us there makes it clear that he desires that his return is a matter of serious concern for us, that we are doing our work. If we're the watchman, we're watching the door. Whatever God's given us to do, we're doing that so that when he comes back, the master will not find us sleeping. And far too many Christians in our world are doing just that. They're sleeping. They're not thinking about the kingdom of God. They're not carrying forth the kingdom in what they do and what they say. They're sleeping. Well, the second question we want to discuss about the return of Christ is how will Jesus come? Um, Dr. David Jeremiah is a pastor and author who lives and ministers at Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California. His work I commend to you. Some of you may already watch him on television. But David Jeremiah says this, in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, no less than 17 books mention Christ's return. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. 17 of those talk about the return of Christ. The New Testament authors speak about Christ's return in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Seven out of the 10 chapters in the New Testament refer to his return In other words, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth. And that's why we need to be concerned about it, why we need to be thinking about it. Not about the exact day, but about the fact that he's coming. Well, of the many details that the Bible gives us about the return of Jesus, we want to consider uh, just two today. First of all, he will return to the place from which he left. So Acts chapter 1 is a record of the ascension of Jesus back to heaven after his death and burial and resurrection and the 40 days that he spent ministering to his followers. And the Bible says in Acts 1 that Jesus is standing there with them, his followers, on the Mount of Olives again. And I quote, As they were looking up on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So those two angels there that day assured his followers, Jesus' followers, that Jesus is going to come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, then in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, one of dozens, if not more, Old Testament prophecies on the second coming of Christ, the prophet 
Zechariah says that Jesus is going to stand again on the Mount of Olives. And here's what Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5 say. On that day, the return of Christ, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So, brothers and sisters, that, those verses give you a, a bit of a picture as to what kind of return the Lord Jesus will have. He will come in such power and such authority that the Mount of Olives is going to split open. And the Bible says, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And that, friends, may be some of us. It's also important to note about the return of Christ, secondly, that he's going to come on the clouds personally and in power and glory, every person on earth will see him. Again, Matthew chapter 24. You'll notice how often I've quoted from that and that gives you an idea of the importance of that chapter. Matthew 24, verse 29 to 31. Jesus says, immediately after, and we've read it already, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Part of the reason for me reading that again is to compare with it Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 where we find something quite similar. Behold, he is coming. This is the Apostle John now. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, that's the Jews, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So when Jesus comes for the second time, no one on earth will miss it. His first coming, what we celebrate at Christmas at this time of year, was in humility. He was born in a shelter for animals, and he lived a life of poverty. But the second coming of Jesus will be in power and in glory. And the scriptures tell us in what we just read, that the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Remember when Jesus was on the cross during the hours from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon? It was pitch black. God just threw a pall of darkness over the whole scene. And he'll do that again. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. We don't know what that sign will be. And all the tribes, all the peoples of the earth will mourn and wail, the Bible says, as they see him coming on the the clouds with power and great glory. So why will they mourn and wail? Because the one whose name they've used as a curse word, the one who they've spat upon and made fun of, all of a sudden they see that he's the king of the universe. And so they wail and mourn when they realize the one they cursed and rejected is the monarch of the universe. Well, let's talk for a moment about the last question for today. Why will Jesus come? 
Why will Jesus come? And as we study these things that we've studied today and that we can go to the Scripture and study, we need to thank God that He's revealed them to us in a pretty simple, understandable way in the Bible. That's why the Bible is such an amazing book. Because God takes things that we would know nothing about and He reveals them to us. He lays them out there on the page so we can study them and try to understand them. So the second coming of the Lord will be an awesome, complex, earth-shattering event. So I've got a little pet peeve, and, and, and no offense to anybody here, but my pet peeve is the way we can use the word awesome for the kind of ice cream we eat and the coming of Jesus. Because, friends, when Jesus comes again, you're going to see what awesome really looks like. It's going to be overwhelming for us as people. It's an occasion that is going to affect every single person in this world and bring the whole world under the immediate sovereign control of Jesus Christ. And I want to mention to you just a few of the reasons why our Lord is coming back. talked about how He's coming, when He's coming, but why is He coming? First of all, He's coming to judge evil and punish those who reject Him and the gospel. So the passage I've given you here, either in your Bible, for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 or on the screen, this is the kind of passage we don't read often in the, script, in the Bible, in our church. But it's probably one we should read more often. It's powerful and it's sobering and it talks plainly about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Remember the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when Jesus comes again, that verse is going to come true. God is going to pour out his vengeance on those who have afflicted his people. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when it comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul says here, first let me note that Jesus is going to come back to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. So there's a verse, I think it's in 1 Peter, it says, whom having not seen you love. So we love Jesus even though we've never seen him. But on that day when he comes back, we're going to see him for the first time. And we're going to marvel at how great and incredible and awesome he is. But there's another aspect of his coming here. The Bible does not speak very often. You may have the impression the Bible goes on and on and on about how God's going to punish people. But the Bible does not speak comparatively very often about God's justice toward evildoers and those who harm his people. In fact, the Bible calls God's acts of judgment 
his strange work. You look it up sometime. The acts of God's acts of judgment are his strange work. What does that mean? That means that God does this work only when people will not respond to his love. He would much rather that people respond to his love, to his grace, to his forgiveness, but if they will not, then he will carry out his strange work. Matthew Henry, a well-known commentator who lived years ago, put it like this, and I quote, None are punished by the justice of God, but those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. Let me say it again. None are punished by the justice of God, but those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. So this passage that we've read here describes God's actions when Jesus returns and the terrible price that some people will pay because they refuse to turn away from their lives of sin and selfishness. They say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I think it was C.S. Lewis once said, the cry of hell is this, I am my own. You see, some people go through their lives and they say, I am my own. God's not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And so C.S. Lewis says, well, finally, if that's the way you go through life, finally God will eventually say, fine, have have it your way. And the cry of hell is, I am my own. So Paul says here that God will repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted. The Bible also records that those who disobey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. That particular part of the scriptures is something that many people, especially young people, struggle with. That people will someday, because they're disobedient to the gospel, because they will not believe, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. A destruction that never ends. It goes on and on. And this, brothers and sisters, this is why your testimony as a follower of Jesus, is so essential. Because the eternal destiny of your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, it's it's at stake here. That's what God is trying to tell us. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if people will not repent, then eventually, when the end comes, they will be judged. So for the love of God... And for the love of those who are around us, we must warn people of what will happen when our Lord Jesus returns. Well, another major reason why Jesus is coming to this earth is he's coming to receive his own to himself and reward them. Matthew 24 again, verse 31. Jesus will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Remember how Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? The realization being nowhere, you can't hide from God. 
So the thing is, God knows exactly who his people are and exactly where they are every moment of every day, all of their lives, and on into eternity. So when Jesus comes back, one of his chief concerns is going to be the welfare of his people. And so he's going to send his angels out, and they're going to gather from the four corners of the earth, so to speak, everyone who belongs to Jesus. This verse calls them the elect, and they are. So those ones who are so precious to Jesus are going to be rewarded for their faithful service, and, and Jesus will ensure that they're with him forever. Revelation twenty two eleven, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Well, the third reason for Jesus' return to earth is he's coming to usher in a new age. <clears throat> You may not have noticed this, um, but the Bible uses two categories when it talks about time. It talks about this age and the age to come. Matthew 12, 32, Jesus said, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Uh, Peter once said to Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus responds to him like this, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more, many times more in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's a wonderful promise. If you've left behind your home, or your family, your wife, your husband, if you've left behind things to serve the Lord Jesus, he will make sure you are fully rewarded. So today, in 2023, we live in this age, the present age. But when Jesus returns, he's coming to usher in the new age called the age to come. So remember from where we started, Matthew 24, verse 3 and 4, the disciples came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they asked, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples knew that their age was ending at some point. And the Messiah, who they now realized was Jesus, would usher in a new age. And friends, this is what we look forward to too. The end of this age and the dawning of the age to come when we will enjoy eternal life in the kingdom of God. Well, as I conclude, when we try to understand something, it can be helpful to visualize it. So, I'd like to give you just a quick pictorial view. So this is a timeline of the end times. So the top left, eternity past. The top right, eternity future. The line that runs from the far left to the far right across the page represents human history, beginning with creation. Over there on the left. And toward the left end of that line, you see a cross and a stone that symbolized the death and the resurrection of Christ. And where we are living today is called the church age. The church age is the time that started when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and is going to go on and on until I believe Jesus will take his children out of this world. And the line that comes down from above on the right represents the return of our Lord Jesus Christ that we've studied today. Well, last year, Carolyn and I got a new microwave. Gave up the ghost, the old one. And one of the helpless features of that 
helpful features of that microwave is there's a brilliant white light that shines on the cooktop. And in the dark of night when I'm stumbling around the house, I can see that cooktop from a mile away, so to speak. And friends, um, that's what this doctrine of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is meant to be for us. It's meant to be a brilliant white light that's way out there, maybe closer than we think, and we look for that, the blessed hope of the believer. And this hope should shine especially brightly for us as Christians at Christmas time. See, the Old Testament prophesied dozens, if not hundreds of times, that Jesus would come to earth as our Savior. And every word of that came true. And the Old Testament also prophesied dozens of times, as does the New Testament, that Jesus, the same Jesus, is coming again as our King. And friends, you can count on it. Every word will come true. When John is concluding the book of Revelation, he says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, Father, thank you for the plainness of your word about these things. Thank you that you've given us this book that we can hold in our hands, that we can read and study and compare passages and understand better as time goes by this particular doctrine and every other one as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming again someday. And we pray that you'll help us as your people to be awake and ready. And Father, if there's one or two people here this morning who've never surrendered their life to Christ, never turned away from their sin, never asked for your forgiveness and the eternal life that you gladly give to those who confess their sins, I just pray that that person, that man or woman or young person, might open their heart to you today. Might welcome the Lord Jesus in through his spirit. That they might be ready as well for that day when Jesus comes. And so we bless your name. We thank you for the joy of being your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. I didn't ask if there's anything between the sermon and the Lord's Supper. I assume not. Hopefully I'm assuming correctly. <clears throat> well, no one's speaking up. I will assume that I have. So I'd like to welcome you to the table of the Lord today. If you're a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, your right uh, to eat at this table has been purchased at great cost by the Son of God himself. And listen as I read the familiar words uh, that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul wraps it up by saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? So you may not have noticed before how much the direct connection here between 
this wonderful time of fellowship we have as Christians around the table of the Lord, remembering our Savior, how, how Paul connects that to the time that Jesus is coming back for us. This will only go on until he comes, and then we'll be with him forever. So it's our joy and our responsibility then as the children of God to proclaim the death of Christ on the cross by speaking out the gospel message and also by partaking in this celebration. The church has two pictures that we show to the world. The first picture is baptism, where we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him in newness of life. This is the other picture, the picture of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll ask our brothers to come forward uh, who are going to uh, help me with this this morning. The two Randys and Ernie. The thing is we find the scripture also cautioning us as we come to this table. In 1 Corinthians 11 we read, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it doesn't say stop. It says examine yourself. Be sure everything is right in your life with the Lord. And then come and eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we want to take a moment just of silent prayer for you to come before the Lord. If you don't know the Lord today, if you've never become a Christian, it's probably better that you just let these things pass by. And as Christians, as we come to the Lord, let's examine ourselves, confess any known sin. If there are people that we need to make things right with, to commit in our hearts to doing that. But the other thing is, if you've never become a Christian in this very moment, you'd like to turn to God in repentance and faith. There's no better time than right now to come to the Lord and trust in Him. So shall we pray together. Thank you, Father, that we can know for sure that you hear our prayers. And you've heard the prayers of your people in these moments. And we just, um, as your people, want to commit ourselves to you. We ask for your forgiveness where we've sinned against you. We ask for your cleansing, the cleansing of the blood of Christ. We thank you that um, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. If we're a believer, but we also realize that in our journey through the world, uh, our feet, our hands become dirty as we're in contact. And so we ask that you'll cleanse away that, that dirt through the power of the blood of Christ. And Father, we bless your name for this feast that we can enjoy together. Thank you. It's not about what we eat and drink, but it's about the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ willingly gave himself, his body and his blood, that we as your children might be restored to a relationship of fellowship with you. So bless us then as we partake, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So the bread as we partake of it together is the symbol of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was given for us. And in just a moment, we'll um, partake of it together, but I'll ask our brothers to uh, take these. And then I will uh, ask Randy T. to... uh, 
to lead in prayer. So if you'll just wait when you receive the bread and then we'll partake together. Thanks, I'll give it to you. Thank you. So Paul tells us that uh, the Lord Jesus, and when you hear, listen to the scripture, you need to ask yourself questions. So how did Paul know that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread? Well, someone obviously told him, right? So he was in fellowship with the other apostles, and he would have heard it from them, and so he would have recorded it as being true, which it is, of course. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the cup, as we partake of it, is the symbol of the 
shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out on Calvary for our sins, the sins of anyone who will come to Christ. And, and I'll ask our brother Randy M. to lead in prayer, giving thanks for this symbol. Mm-hmm. We are undeserving, but trust in So we read that in the same way also Jesus took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father thank you for this um, time around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering him. We pray that the memory of what he has done for us, his 
death and burial, his resurrection, the coming of his spirit to dwell in our hearts, that all these things might motivate us um, to follow him, to give our lives to him even as he gave up his life for us. So we want to commend one another into your care for this week to come, that as we go out into the world to represent you as Christians, the ones who bear the name of Christ, that you would help us to live up to that great name, that we might honor it and glorify it in the way that we live, in what we say, what we do. And so, Father, we commend ourselves to your care now. And we thank you for this meal we're going to enjoy together. We ask your rich blessing on this food now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as most of you likely know, um, the first